Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Magnum Reads. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and joining me are Sarah and BJ. How are y'all doing? I'm doing well, Spencer. How are you? I'm uh, doing fine. Looking forward to talking about the third part of the Water Dancer today. BJ, same for you, or are you dreading this experience? Uh, no, I'm looking forward to it, even in these uh, uncertain times. Well, this book is very helpfully structured in three distinct parts that are roughly equal in size. size nope. <laughs> yeah. That is a dirty, dirty lie. Well, we had that, we had that hope when the original decree divided up, and then the second part turned out to be, like, half again as long as the other ones, but I'm sticking to this plan that we had. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, for part three, we each had our own views, our own hopes, our own anticipations for how this book would end up but also a massive amount of uncertainty attached to those, given the tendency of this book to surprise us. We were talking a little bit uh, pre-pod about what some of our, you know, end views and uh, whether our anticipations were actually met. BJ, what would you say about... You had an interesting point about how this book kind of came across as three different books smushed together. Yeah, um, so I, I think that each of the parts had a very different feel, tone... Um, I, I even wonder if they were written at somewhat separate times uh, because of sort of how the book was presented and what was focused on. Um, the first section, and we talked a lot about this, was really sort of the feel of uh, antebellum Virginia on a plantation. You really sort of got a feel for the world and who was in it and, and what the time on the plantation was like. And then the second was just sort of more of a wandering abound exploration of some of the characters and sort of talking about like what maybe the progress from uh, being uh, one of the tasks to participating in the Underground Railroad, sort of what that like, it wasn't really character growth because we didn't really see a lot of the, the main character growing per se, but sort of that, that experience, like who you would talk to and who you'd be around. Mm-hmm. A broadening um, of perspective, if not necessarily a growth of character. Yeah. And and the third, again, is, is completely different. And it's just sort of uh, a denouement that I don't think I at all expected going in. And I'm still not really sure how I feel about it, but my gut reaction is it's sort of uh, unfulfilling and a little bit boring. It was interesting for me for this third section. It al- it almost feels like it ended about 60% of the way through of where I anticipated it was going to end. Of where The entire point of this book always seemed to be building up to the idea of him eventually finding out about what happened with his mom, finding out about his past, establishing that connection that is necessary for his powers to develop. And that does happen in this section. And he uses the powers in one triumphal moment. But then the book just kind of ends. There isn't really much of a resolution thereafter, which really puts in my mind Again, the focus of this book was about Hiram. It was about this process of really kind of establishing a link back to Africa through family and through this distant passing of magical abilities going all the way back to the continent when uh, various ancestors were originally taken into bondage. And that's fine, but it leaves off a lot of what I found interesting about the world building and the character growth and some of the character arcs I thought were going to be there that were seemingly set up in the first section. And this third part are hinted at, even like first act taunted about, oh, this will be an interesting resolution in the future. Like, the whole ultimately kind of co- confrontation with with uh, Kareem that is threatened in an almost <laughs> interestingly hostile way, but then just kind of 
dials off with these interesting, very much postscript descriptions of him saying, in retrospect, I knew that she was right. But we never really get to see him have that kind of thought. Yeah. It just, just, the entire book kind of puts a very different emphasis on the story than I thought or really anticipated or kind of even wanted. And that's not necessarily an indictment of it. It's just he wanted to tell a very different story than I was kind of looking for. Yeah. And I think, like, a lot of it just is... uh changed expectations throughout the book and then maybe a uh it's more about sort of the nature of slavery in in Mm -hmm. virginia rather than uh many other things that it could be about and sort of the damage that it does to different people and sort of what that ends up meaning for a, a section of the characters that we meet rather than you know we we do see this growth and changing of of the main character Hiram and and sort of how he starts dealing with things and th- the development of his powers but like it it's not uh, a very interesting development and and we don't really get a lot of detail in that development mm-hmm. so it sort of almost seems like a background um Sarah, I'm sort of curious what how you felt and what you thought about like how like all of the relationships ended up because we did talk quite a bit about that at the end of the last episode where um, it's sort of setting up that he's going to have these reunions and like talk to certain people again that he hasn't seen for a while while he's been in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and then that happens and it kind of like sputters. Yeah, it's a little those those reunions while they all do happen are all a little a little lackluster um in terms of what you might have wanted from like and and what I did want from kind of a narrative perspective um which I think is interesting in this idea of kind of changing perspectives throughout the book and kind of it feels oh almost like what scientific instrument would you put towards this BJ? <laughs> I was going to say it seems like a microscope coming in and out of focus, but that's not really it because you actually shift where you're looking, um, I think, at different at different points in this book. And so while as much as it has been about Hiram's sort of personal journey up to this point, and we've talked a lot about that, I think that this idea that it's somehow towards the end of this book actually widening out somewhat... Mm-hmm. to be thinking more about slavery at the particular point in slavery that we're dealing with is really interesting because we spent a lot, I think, of the last, the end of the last episode trying trying to suss out, well, I think we were specifically trying to suss out how old Harriet Tubman was. Um, but <laughs> Among other things, yes. In yeah. that process, I think we were also trying to sort of pinpoint what what year we are in, um, or what you know what time frame we're in during the story. And I think the answer we came up with was um, that we were dealing with kind of the middle of, or we were we were nowhere near in sight the end of slavery. We were not right moving consistently towards seg- or uh, towards um, succession or um, sorry 
secession and, secession. and the Thank civil you. war. Yeah. And the civil war, like we were not anywhere near that yet. And so, you know, in that, if we are going to read this story and particularly the third part of the story as more of a story of the of slavery but also the particular experience of being at a moment in slavery in the United States then these kind of untethered unfinished endings feel right because mm-hmm. we're not at the end of anything mm-hmm. yep um at, at some point, I might regale you with uh, some advances in microscopy and mesoscopes, and that that will fill out your uh, metaphor, and Thank you'll you. probably be unhappy with the detail that <laughs> I provide. I fully anticipate but, being unhappy with the detail, but... <laughs> we, we could just use the slideshow description. That works, too, in terms of rotating yep. between different images. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's I think it's a very interesting point, Sarah, because the end of the story almost seems to I don't necessarily mock the idea of resolution, but just kind of puts an emphasis on the fact that nothing is really done yet. Yeah. And the last line of the story is like, well, what do we do now? Well, we do we, we do what we're doing. We stick. We're we're in the underground, and the story yeah. just ends there. And if this is indeed a meditation on slavery on the subject of something that is, you're in the middle of a moment. You're, there's no resolution. All different people that are living in that kind of state. Well, that's an interesting interpretation. That could be very much what the author's going for. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make for the most satisfying resolution of character arcs or character relationships. Sure. Um, we see that, I think, I mean, we talked about how many character relationships we were, inch- we were really interested in seeing go back into focus. Because how much we liked some of the character uh, relationships in the first section, how much they were really moved to the background or kind of described with a uh, bit of nostalgia in the second. And what we anticipated would come back here for the third. Um, I think one of the big ones that we talked about a lot that we wanted to see more of was Hiram's relationship with Thin, particularly <laughs> with how much he had built her up as the mother figure, come to realize that she was the mother figure in his life as much as he resisted in his early teenage years. Mm-hmm. How do you guys feel about where it wrapped up in this book? Because it definitely had a resolution. He got her out of slavery, he got her back with her family. But I didn't feel like there was much interaction between the two of them. It felt very true and not satisfying in in terms of uh, a story exploration. Mm -hmm. Um, Just her her anger towards him and then sort of the realization and understanding that she could see her daughter again and then that just sort of being the end of it because that's how probably how how something like that might have worked it it just Mm -hmm. it feels unpleasantly real is not quite the right way i want to put it but it's close it it is one thing i did go ahead Mm -hmm. i'm sorry well it it is definitely one thing i like in terms of her reaction to the idea of him saying of Hiram saying i can link you back up with her family and her initial reaction to that is an absolute ptsd avoidance of pain that you are going to put me back into a world that I've only survived by putting in an isolated locked box in my past. Mm-hmm. So her, her initial reaction to that idea is absolute anger and avoidance. And that, is an, that is an interestingly and probably very accurate emotional point of how someone would have to have coped with this degree of trauma in the past and what they would go through if you were suddenly able to relieve, well, not necessarily even relieve them of that, but force them to confront it again. But sorry, Sarah, I cut you off. Um, no, that's fine. I think 
you know, that it's interesting that both of you are pointing to kind of the, the realness of this, this interaction and the situation and the unsatisfying, um, the un, the dissatisfaction that you feel with the, the reality of this, which is such a, like I did as a sort of meta comment is such an interesting comment on like what successful narratives do and what's mm-hmm. what successful storytelling is um, and the artifice that is that is involved in that but I do so it is I mean I'm certainly unsatisfied with that as a story as as well um, but it is now that we are talking about it it's interesting to kind of tease out okay but like don't aren't we always asking for authenticity in our stories and like authentic <laughs> emotional reactions and like the the real answer is no we're we're not we we don't like to see the strings we like to have a yes. feel of authenticity without actually having to see the strings moving behind the scenes to make that possible yes so i, I need I, I need a well done artifice please <laughs> Well, I, I think that there are a couple of aspects of the artifice and, and the the realness that have, I mean, I think we've discussed a little bit in, in other places, but it's sort of the, um, there are two th- things that, that I'm reminded of here, and, and one is uh, the never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there there's sort of the, abject truth of what might have happened but like the exploration of what was going on in different characters heads and things like that can flesh it out and so it's still real but it's a little less real of how people might experience it because you like you don't get that perspective yeah it's it's also just it's also just an issue of pacing i mean you can tell a real story but how you structure it how you frame it is how you get your audience invested in it i Two people can tell the exact same series of events, and for one, you can be absolutely spellbound for it, and the other one, you can be bored out of your mind. Even if they're reading from the same book, just in how they emphasize certain parts, or even the, if they're given a certain freedom of structure, how they order it. Yeah. I think that really leads into one, what is going to be a very bit of a different response we had, was the different mediums by which we experienced this. Yes. Mm-hmm. That... BJ and I both read this. I made the very stupid decision of powering through 90 pages in one sitting for this last part. Don't do that. Sarah, on the <laughs> other hand, you listened to the audiobook, which you have said several times was a very interestingly unique experience, particularly how you went about doing it. Yeah, and so, you know, I am not, uh, while I have been listening to a lot more audiobooks during our lockdown state, um, I'm not generally an audiobook listener unless I'm on car rides um, or road trips or something like that. But um, I did listen to this, and I'm glad that I did for a couple of reasons. I think I talked a little bit about it in in our previous episodes. But one, I mean, the 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 reader who read this, and I should look this up while I'm doing talking about this. So let me see if I can do that. Um, was like really quite extraordinary um and i very much appreciated his particular reading so i mean that's that's always one thing but i do feel like this is a um a book that really benefits from 
listening instead of actually reading simply because it allows you to kind of float along with the narrative and not you don't have to be if you're doing something else for example like I was doing marathon sewing sessions while I was listening to this book if you're doing something like relatively mindless while you're while you're listening to it the experience of how much time is passing while you are trying to struggle through some of the like less action filled parts of this book sort of drifts away because you can kind of mentally drift in and out of of what's going on and and the person who was reading this which i am still trying to determine um really facilitated that type of experience too um so i really enjoyed listening to it although in the in our discussion of the past couple of episodes and in kind of flipping back through the actual book i totally see what you all are talking about in terms of <laughs> the like weird pacing of this whole thing and moments where perhaps it is not as um streamlined as it could be mm-hmm. yeah and uh, so the other thing I was going to mention that it re- sort of reminded me of is there's, um, if you guys have seen The Graduate, the last scene in The Graduate where they're sort of just married and wandering away on a bus and mm-hmm. they're all happy and then sort of reality <laughs> sets in and they just sort of sit there and kind of look at the camera and kind of blank expressions on their face, even maybe boredom. And sort of that's like the realness that that can be really great for a brief period of time, but I feel like it was a little bit more than than I wanted in terms of that like that type of realness mm-hmm. in uh, notably that realness in the graduate also is commentary after the resolution of a traditional plot right of where the story has resolved in a way that is fitting and mirrors all kinds of tropes but how that, that, that kind of story would resolve but then it just takes that extra minute to then ponder ever so briefly let the audience into the minds of the characters of okay we've completed the classic arc the the, the scene fades to black and everyone's happy well what happens if we just consider it for the minute as characters just suddenly ponder what they did yeah the, and uh, one quick thing so the and I might have mentioned this in one of our previous episodes but the the reader for the audiobook was Joe Morton um, and that was excellent but I think one of the other things that is so interesting about um, like the the character the character arcs and the interactions that we get in this third part is you really it gets hammered home in kind of how these last interactions and resolutions go, how willfully this uh, book is uninterested in um, letting you into the interiority of any character other than Hiram. Absolutely. And I find that very frustrating. Because <laughs> this book, almost, I don't even, I don't, this comes across more negative than I really mean, but almost accidentally this book has devised some very interesting characters in the background. <laughs> of where there are characters like, um, I'm blanking on the name of, Hi- of Hiram's father's first name, but... Uh, Howell. What, Howell Walker. 
Hal Walker and his psychology and his processing of the guilt in terms of slavery. Kareen Quinn and her motivations and her religious zeal to go into her cause. Georgie Parks and his what he needs to compromise to survive in this slave society. Thinna and how she processes her, processes her past trauma. Now she confronts this unfairness and almost her resistance to the idea of just surviving while still persisting herself. Earl, fascinating character arcs that I was so interested to see explored more and so interested to see the confrontation with Hiram as he comes to, you know, confronts these often very antagonistic beliefs compared to his own. But none of those are really addressed. They get very almost just token resolutions because they're not what the book actually wants to talk about. And I find that frustrating just because I found them interesting, but I have to come back to that it just is further proof that this book has a very specific purpose. It has a very specific through line that I was at times ignoring because I didn't find it as interesting. But it has always been there, even if it was at times immersed in other things. And so how would you articulate that through line, Spencer? I mean, the through line, this is a story about one character. This is a story about one character's trauma, what was taken from him by society, almost mm -hmm. to the point where I ponder whether this story is allegorical when it comes to the literal locked box on his father's mantle. Mm. Of where there is a locked box, there is a, this is as close to a MacGuffin as possible, except they <laughs> ultimately tell us what it is. That there is a locked box on the mantle that he is, you know, resistant to look at because of his past raising in this family, because of what, it, what his brother went through. But eventually looks at it and it severs his relationship with his father. It imminently connects him back to his past. It's something that his father took away from him, but keeps as a marker of his own guilt. There is a lot of that is wrapped up in this lockbox in terms of this overall story. And this, the resolution we effectively see in this chapter is him taking this from his father, what his father stole from them, opening it up and it being a object of his mother's that connects back to his, his ancestral roots and gives him that connection that allows him to wield the magic in a way that he's never been able to before. Everything's been kind of building up about what that absence has been. That has been the most recurring motif over this entire book, is that he has a perfect memory, but he's had this one absence. And the entire story ultimately is gaining a certain perspective on the world so that he can go back home and fix that absence in his memory and that absence in himself that his father ultimately is responsible for taking him for and confronting the past adoration that he had for his father with now the realization that that adoration was built around him taking away a fundamental aspect of his identity. That seems to be the story, and that's fine. It's just, it's, it's not, not ultimately the various parts of the story I found most interesting, in large part because this has been taunted from so very day one. Mm -hmm. BJ, what are, your, what are your thoughts on what the ultimate point of the story is? Um... <laughs> Let's start with a sigh. Good point. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess... T I think it's really just sort of an exploration of uh, basically different people's struggle with what slavery is, even outside of it, and especially outside of it. Um, because essentially, fairly quickly after the book starts, most of the characters that we end with are no longer in the same task slash slave position that they were in and they have a lot to deal with and it's sort of that exploration um i guess i sort of feel like anything else 
makes me sort of question like why so many other things happened and like why certain things were described the, the way they were mm. and it's like well a lot of other things just don't make sense to me if it's not for that purpose yeah well i think we certainly kind of to the unfinished state as well we get a lot of evidence that one of the the main things that this book is concerned with is how sort of being quote unquote free is not is not itself an the end being free is as much a state of mind as it is a state of being yes and also almost like it's the beginning of people's lives and Mm -hmm. what they have to deal with rather than a resolution yeah there's a giant building process that has to has to go on not least of which is kind of repairing and reclaiming those memories that were lost Mm -hmm. right and we also see a failure there uh essentially and i would say georgie parks is sort of that yeah i'd almost struggle to say it is just because I was very much anticipating that was going to be a major aspect of the plot, and the confrontation and the dealing with the guilt of that. We even had that teased in the second section. But the Freeman and Georgie Parks are not referenced at all in the ultimate wrap-up and climax of this book, or even in the third part at all, I don't think. Um, they're, no, but I think you could, you could interpret it as a failure case based on the first part. Yeah. That's, what I guess, where I was going with it. Not like how the Georgie Parks to Hiram situation resolves, but, like, how uh, Parks himself, like, deals with no, like, essentially escaping slavery, but very much not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that that's interesting. The idea that he is nominally out of slavery now and is, like, in reality is, is very much not. Is that what you mean by failure? Right. I, yeah. I guess that that's really, well, like... Yeah you have the perspective of many different characters and how they're basically no longer in their original position of uh, where they were in, in, in the task and, and their servitude, but they have all sort of nominally been freed, but none have really ended up in a position that many would call like freedom or a finished story. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a, a key point that several characters in the story escape sla- escape bondage in several ways, but they still live in a slave society, even if they're up in yeah. the north. Yeah. That as long as slavery exists, they are still living within the lens of slavery. That's something they can never really escape as long as that's something that persists in the world. Like, to use Georgie Parks as an example, he, he has liberated himself from bondage, but he is still living in a slave society. He's still living in a world where slavery is the norm. And the only way he can exist and persist is in the way that society allows, which is limited and hostile at best. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for even those people that are living in the North, that they are, they are still dealing with family that are remaining in bondage. They are still dealing with the omnipresent threat that they could be taken by a slave trader at any point. They are still dealing with people that are uncomfortable with what role they now have in a free society. And also, like, essentially have to wander about armed because people from the South just sort of wander up and are the worst. Mm-hmm. And are legally mandated to be the worst. <laughs> well, yes. Um, that well, was not a more. defense. That was a further no, no, condemnation no. <laughs> of the system. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> just <laughs> for reference. They're, indivi- they're individuals who are basically licensed to go up and grab people and 
take them back to slavery. And mm-hmm. the only degree of illegality that's attached there is whether the person that they grab is, in the views of society, actually a slave or not. Like that in some way makes their mission more noble if they are. Yeah. One question I wanted to ask, too, about... One thing that becomes, a, I would say, a key part of this story is the romantic relationship between Hiram and Sophie. Sophie or Sophia? I think it's Sophia. I think it's Sophia, and she goes by Sophie. Okay. Uh, this becomes a key emphasis for our character in, I think, the third section. Um, h- how do you feel about this romantic relationship and how it kind of took a, a more central role in this book as time went on? It's fine. <laughs> I like... <laughs> I, like some, there are some things about the the interaction that are kind of tropey. Um, it I, it was it was okay. Like it wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Um, you know, the the person that that gave uh, spinning silver a bad review because it wasn't sexy was probably also <laughs> similarly disappointed. Um, but it. It, it is interesting. Ultimately, I think I find Sophie more interesting than I find the relationship she's put in, mm-hmm. or to a degree, or put upon her. Um, but I find her interesting for the same reason that you just mentioned, BJ, about the thing I find most interesting about this book is the processes of characters in coping with slavery and the world that is described around them. That is the thing I've always found most interesting about this book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for her herself, I mean, her process of dealing with slavery or confrontations with Hiram about the importance of her being her own person, not being owned by anybody, by well, seeking a companion and not somebody to serve as a new lord over her, are very interesting meditations. I guess I just kind of find Hiram ultimately a bit of a... Um, I don't have much emotional connection to him to that ultimately be invested as much in his emotional relationships. I, find more, I think I'm more invested in the other parts of his relationships than I am with his contribution to them. Yeah, I mean, he's also, like, 20, 21, so he's, emotional he does depth a, is... He does a lot for 21. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I find it interesting, and, and I think, like, her reaction to um, essentially not wanting to be in what would be considered a fairly normal relationship back then to be sort of an expression of her trauma, where it's just, like, I can't have you, like, come and take me out and then feel beholden, like, I cannot be beholden to you, even if it's taking me away from the South. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, is that we, ha- we have an added fear in this section that we didn't have before of where she's fearing a potential legitimacy with Nathaniel Walker. So that if she's brought out to Tennessee, their relationship can be open. They can get married. They can actually have a proper, legal, open relationship. And more than anything, she is fearing that idea in this section, that that could be her future. Because it would be one that's, in which, that though it would be legal, though it would be open, it would be even more so entirely without her having any power or control of her fate. And that's an interesting, um, that possibility is an interesting intersection between her previous fears as, um, sort of slave and kept woman and the fears of Corrine Quinn, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In dealing just as a white Southern woman with patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, For many of our characters, it's societal expectations that are almost their biggest fear or what's driving so much of their pain. Um, 
And an interesting point you made there too about Reverend Sophie that early in the book, what she's fearing most is the idea that she could be cast off because she has no standing. Because once she gets pregnant, she can be just be cast aside or forgotten as she gets mm-hmm. older. Now she's fearing, in some ways, the idea of legitimacy because that's timeless. She can never escape from that. Um, but I think another example too. I mean, Corinthian's a wonderful example of what she's done to resist what society's been imposed upon her because of her role, because of what everyone expects of her. Another interesting example we see here in this section is Hal Walker, of where we get in our time we get to spend yeah. between him and Hiram talking, we see a profound amount of guilt and regret in this character, in ways that don't in any way justify his actions or forgive the very complicated and twisted and broken person that he is. But it's an interesting thing of where he has enough perspective to see that he has done wrong, but feel that he was in some ways powerless to do other. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so, and we've been kind of dancing around this in this conversation um, about how unsatisfying Hiram is as a narrator in many, <laughs> in many different ways. But it's so, except for the fact that he presumably has this magic attached to him, and, and in fact does, as we have found out through the course of this novel, he is the most boring of the characters that we could be following. <laughs> and I I wonder if that's sort of a conscious choice to yeah. say, like, the the main character doesn't matter. That's not what that's not what the book is about. That's not yep. what we should be focusing on. It's not the romantic relationship. I mean, like the these things that many of these books are written about aren't the point. Mm-hmm. The, the it's the heroes are heroes and they're they're fun to read about but they're not the experience is not about them if that's the case though why give him superpowers why give him a family history why give him an arc why frame everything around his relationships is it purely just out of reader expectation and a convenience for a, a easily digestible format or um, I think it might be partially that, and I think the the superpowers that he has are uh, more about what was lost than mm-hmm. an actual mm-hmm. power, and more about like preservation of memory than I mean the powers themselves. Yeah. Like he essentially doesn't use, and you know, there's the the clap on clap off that he does, like that that's just. <laughs> Like, obviously, somebody would, like, people would do that. And it's mm-hmm. funny. And it's just, like, like, the, like, once that happens, the powers don't matter. Like, they're, they're meaningless. The, the ultimate point of the powers within the book is to liberate his adoptive mother from bondage. That's what everything builds up to, is this moment of him getting her to Maryland and reuniting her with her family. I... I disagree. Well, I in, in functionally terms of to the purely, story, pu- yes. purely function and plot. For the in terms of the actual importance, it's what they represent in terms of connecting him back to his family and his roots and this gap in his memory. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because squeezing a hot a, a carved horse to pop across a river is just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, <laughs> it, it, it's just one of the things that we get into about what the point of this is because from these. From this moment, from a plot standpoint, as being a kind of climactic moment, it's entirely poorly paced. It's it's not very much set up. It just kind of happens, and then when it's done, it's done, and the story wraps up. And it, 
Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, Spencer. Go ahead. No, please. No, no. Well, I, I was just going to say that we we frequently, when we get to the last episode in which we are talking about novels, we frequently talk about how we might have rewritten them, and or what we might have done to have improved them. And I don't know that we necessarily want to get into entirely that discussion now or have a full-fledged discussion of that at all. But I do think the question of, okay, this magic is clearly um, linked to and a stand-in for recovering a memory that has been actively stolen by the institution of slavery by way of Hiram's father. Mm -hmm. Did it have to be magic? Is there a different way we could have done this where we didn't have to get into, like, the magic of the crossing, which is clearly not Ta-Nehisi Coates' strong point in the writing? So, when you say it's not his strong point, I think, like, the, the, like, blue fog magic, no, but, like, the call-and-answer memory part? was interesting at least yeah but that i feel like that could be done that could be done without magic without magic yeah because i mean i feel like that's that's like not frequently but that is i don't i don't know i I just feel like there are other kind of ways to convey that and get there without having to have the magic Except that he needs the magic for the plot to get Thena out of. <laughs> just, just, just use the in-story example of where this is a moment of, of, of family experiencing a past memory. And one of the key things we see Hiram continually flash back to over the story is that happy moment of dancing that he sees of the entire community coming together. You right. can have those kind of community moments without them being grounded necessarily in the magic of an individual. But I think you'd have to completely, ch- you'd have to change so many things about the book. Like, the whole... I know. <laughs> Right, well, yeah, but like, but his interaction with Harriet Tubman, I think, is important in so many ways, and I don't think there's a a way to do it in this sort of narrative that isn't sort of beholden to magic, because otherwise, like, you sit down and have like a therapy session. Yeah, they're just two people working on the Underground Railroad. Which is honestly most of what they do together, and you know it's what they what what, what she did historically. I mean, therapy I think what, sessions. Well, I don't mean therapy sessions, but in terms of herself without magic, going down to the south and, free, and you know pulling people out of bondage out of primarily Maryland. Right, but I but I think that the the point of reconnecting with memory and that's the the whole like connecting with your story and your roots is a lot of what this is about, and his whole meeting with Harriet Tubman was to me at least was about that rather than like rather than him being able to take somebody out of bondage and so without magic it kind of needs to be like him sitting with Harriet Tubman in some like on the couch therapy sessions to be like well to truly be free you need to be able to connect with other people in ways that they're accepting and connect with your heritage and you know accept the good and the bad memories and and then you have a completely like a novel that that i think fits even less with the 
uh, experience of slavery in the South from different perspectives? It would fundamentally require a rewrite of the entire second section of the book. Because uh, if... if, if <laughs> yes. It, well, I mean, in large part because from, what, from, how, from how you're saying it, about 80% of the second section is dithering. Because Harriet Tubman is involved in the second section. She's involved in the later half of it. But 80% of that before is ir- irrelevant to that process, essentially. Right. and that, But I think it's relevant to the process of understanding how so many different people deal with having come out of slavery. And so I think that that is the... That is what I'm going to decide is the importance of this book, because otherwise it is dithering. <laughs> and <laughs> I much prefer that it had a point and <laughs> then oh man bj you as the defender of the book is a very different position I've than you are normally experienced in. this before <laughs> this I is don't very know how strange to take bj defending a medium <laughs> i'm gonna have to think about this for a while i don't know how i feel <laughs> What essentially essentially I'm suggesting was that it would require the book to focus on one of the things that I found interesting enough, in large part because I had hopes for them, but they were ultimately thwarted, that we would have to actually build up relationships between our main... Our main character would have to be a character, and he would have to have relationships with other characters. Yeah. It would require a rewrite to treat this as as a more traditional narrative, rather than a series of vignette moments to give us character experiences of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it would require a lot more time spent in Virginia. I feel before he ever went north, because uh, I, I think you'd have to build up more of the relationships in the world there before, and then have a much slower transition to then go to the north and experience a different world. It would have to be involved in very much fundamentally different pacing because because of the story is so much focused on just how each individual character experiences the world, and then we move on to the next character once we've gotten a taste of that. It allows inherently for more jumping around and more short shift, kind of like you mentioned, Sarah, in terms of an oral narrative, because it just allows a bit kind of like a fable moment mediation before then moving on to the next. It's not necessarily having to be grounded in reality. It's not having to be grounded in the actual historical moment or even a re- necessarily a real human experience, because it wants to give us a feeling of someone living in that world, but then moving on to the next one so that you get a kind of collage of those. Mm-hmm. And... That's what this book is doing. How well it does that is how much you're willing to accept that as a form of narrative and that is a form of resolution, even though it ultimately, at least for me, is unsatisfying just because of how non-traditionally structured it is and how without a sense of resolution or arc or accomplishment it kind of is. Well, and I think one of the things that, that really bothers me about the magic in this book as much as I liked the experience of listening to this book and experiencing this book more than both of you did. But the thing, I, I think that I am most put off by the, like, the, the realness of this magic. Mm-hmm. It feels out of place to me. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I almost want to say it feels cheap. Is that it's mm. being used as a way of describing something that is much more complex, that is much more deep, and will require more time to really spend and understand about those importance of the relationships, that importance of having a history, having a place and connection in the world, how 
difficult that is and how tragic that is to a person to break about, if you just make that magic, it kind of removes a lot of the power of it, I feel. It also, I think, removes a lot of the responsibility of the writer to really deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, the, to me, this feels like a real sort of like fantasy novel magic dropped into a very different kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about, there are plenty of examples, and I'm going to go for like the easy comparison because I'm tired and we're <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of examples of literature that is dealing with um, the experience of slavery or post-slavery or being black in America um, at various points of time that harness the idea of magic and the weird without making it quite so literal in ways that feel off. And so the easy example that I'm going to is the way that Toni Morrison deals with magic in the experience of being black in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you can certainly think about um, Beloved, but really all of her novels have like something strange that happens in them. And the key difference there is that in Toni Morrison's work and her media and her analysis of magic, magic is in the world. Magic mm-hmm. is an aspect of the universe that you occasionally run into, or that you tap into, or that it is forced upon you. Whereas here, the magic seems very individual. As much as they, you know, frame this as being tying into roots, it's only particular individuals mm-hmm. from their family history that are able to channel this, mm-hmm. which makes it much more of like a. I've described it before as being a superhero narrative, and it doesn't resolve in a new way like one, but it has aspects of that. And the fact that, like, nobody else really knows that it, it exists unless they are specifically told about it or cued into it. Like, this is not... Other than the sort of myth of what Hiram's grandmother has done, mm-hmm. it's not, like, known in the world that this is a power that someone might have. And mm-hmm. it, it may have once been. We do get yes. hints that we liked. We talked about that there may have yes. been a much more magically complex world in the past. That there may have been a world where magic was actively practiced by any individual that was aware of it and had those kind of connections to community. And that it's... We kind of... I think one thing we talked about is how interesting it would be if we explored how that could develop again. Whether mm-hmm. that was something mm-hmm. that the entire community could experience again. And how much that was indeed something that by the process of slavery was taken from them. And we get to see that for an individual, but with no idea whether it is anything that is just purely a genetic legacy of his. Or whether it is something that he's just from having this memory and able to tap into. I think it kind of ends up with, this is his genetic family legacy. Which I don't find as interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What else do we can talk about here? Um, Can we talk about how you all felt about how his re- so we've go- we've gone through some of the relationships and where they ended up and then I derailed us with this conversation <laughs> um, but I think that we were you all were interested in knowing how Corinne was going to come back yeah and affect um, it was fine <laughs> be- BJ, I would like to have a sort of graph of how you have been lackluster or defensive about <laughs> various aspects of this throughout this conversation. We have had two it was fines. So I, I think that the the how I feel about the book and 
in general is I think that there are very interesting things that were done taken Mm -hmm. like when you step back from it once you're finished and you look at the piece of work individual parts I I feel uh, many of them didn't didn't work for me and I I didn't like how they ended up sort of being resolved and and I think we talked a little bit about this and the reality and the granularity of it and and or like how and the pacing of it and so it's kind of like uh you know the brush strokes themselves when you're looking at the details of of the the painting that that this could be you know or sloppy or weird or something like that but like if you take a couple of steps away it's a very interesting uh mm-hmm. picture and so i think that my diff like vehement defense of it is the sum total of the work but a lot of the particulars just weren't fun to go through and i'm not sure i liked how they were done but again, like as an entire body of work, I think it was very interesting. Okay. One of the things and Corinne diff- was fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was kind of like it was it was kind of exactly what we expected to happen in many ways, mm-hmm. and so and then it happened, and then like it it kind of went in a way that it was boring true. <laughs> It's 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 not just that though. It's also that it didn't happen. It's that there are moments of when we get these moments of confrontation between two characters that have been built up, and then the book just kind of puts them under the rug like it's going to address them in a later chapter. It's like the, one mm. of the big big tensions we have from a pure plot standpoint, which I know BJ you're emphasizing that the plot doesn't matter, which is such a weird thing to say about a book, but. It, I have said that many times about books. I know. We, 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 we've discussed this before with you. Sarah's um, working at converting May. I yeah. might be halfway there. BJ, I'm actually very proud of myself in this moment. I know that it doesn't matter, but <laughs> I'm very pleased. Um, but from a, again, from a plot standpoint, which I know is frustrating with this book, but one of the big tension moments that happens between two characters here is Hiram's decision to use his powers to free an individual despite instructions from the Virginia station to not do it that it is too much of a threat to their overall operations. And then he's threatened, he's told there's going to be consequences, it could be disastrous for them. He does the thing, he's called to the carpet, and is basically just told, okay, well, I'll remember this, and then walks away. And then we get several moments of mediation from current narrator Hiram talking about his perspectives on what happened. But we never get to see Hiram in the moment ever have that kind of characterization or actual confrontation moment between two people, despite it being Mm. built up. And there are so many similar moments of where there are things that are being foreshadowed, that are building up, that don't really have a resolution. Now, like you guys are saying, it's because those resolutions don't matter, because it's going for a certain specter of authenticity, despite being grounded in magic, which is, again, a weird pairing. Um, And that it's in some way fitting with reality that we don't have those kind of resolutions, but I feel like it's false advertising for the book, then that the book has been built around structuring and building up for these various moments and even having the narrator suggest that they're going to happen but then not resolve within this text and that's again more of a statement on dissatisfaction than necessarily the structure the structure of the story itself and i mean but you could explain it in real ways that are boring which are just like (laughs) corinne has a plan of getting people out 
on a timetable that she think is is safe and you know whatever and she has like a five-year plan because that's reasonable or 25-year plan because you know that's reasonable to her and she'll eventually get there and somebody comes in and says okay that thing that was going to happen in five years i'm doing now and she's like well no that's going to mess everything up (laughs) um you know i have all the red yarn strings linking everything in in my back room Mm -hmm. and you know i can't take one pin out and Hiram goes nope I'm gonna do it and she gets pissed and then he does it and she's just like all right well i guess i'm gonna figure out how to do everything else you kind of screwed a bunch up but you did it so uh, but it's, it's like it's like the commentary on 2001 you can be intentionally boring but you're still boring i understand your reasons for being boring but you're still boring yeah it's, st- it's still a fundamental state of existence you are Don't operating disagree. in but the plot doesn't matter, Spencer. <laughs> God, we stumbled into the Who's Lines in Anyway style of episode here. Okay, well, if the plot doesn't matter, if we're yeah, coming I mean, to that conclusion for this book, is our ult- what, what are we ultimately saying is the value of this text? What is its purpose of existence? Well, Spencer has started banging on the table to make his point. We are in very serious territory here. I'm trying to get this book to justify itself now. Uh, I mean, I, I, I still think that my, my argument is still valid with and without the plot. And it's a survey of different people that have been impacted by slavery. That's sort of loosely held together by a disappointingly weird superhero. So is that a is is that a successful book though? If we're talking about various vignettes being the purpose of the story and the ultimate connections between them being lackluster, is this a compilation of short stories or is this a novel? So I think I think that it is we we do end up getting a series of vignettes about these sort of different characters and their individual experiences of slavery and freedom under this system of oppression. But I do, and this is where it gets tr- tricky for me because as the book is, is written, <laughs> which I frequently like to dispute, um, mm. but as, as the book is written, I do think that what our main character really brings to the story. And I do think in the way that I would prefer that this book is written, what this main character would bring as the through line to the story that makes it a novel is it's actually a meditation on um, both the the importance of memory and how um, memory is stolen in a slave society and how it is systematically stolen, um, particularly under... American slavery. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, question to put back on you, because you were the one who originally presented it. If that is the purpose, and the purpose that you would want, how would you go about telling the story differently to better accomplish that? Oh, boy. Um, I know. <laughs> put, put you on the spot right now. I... So I think so, we're all kind of coming down to the... We, we kind of agree what the point of this thing is. Yeah. But how would we do it better if we agree that that's the point? So, I, 
I am not opposed to the idea of just getting rid of the magic entirely um, and allowing the dithering of part two to just exist in the world because like, I don't know, dithering happens and I'm okay. Like I am okay with, and this is probably, I am more okay with this because I listened to it instead of reading it. Um, but I'm okay with the kind of meandering way that we get to the memory. I do think that I would have focused, I would focus on it more in the vignettes that we get um, because I feel like we learn most, we learn most about the systematic way in which an individual's narratives are stolen from them when we are talking about Thena than other characters, but it's in the we, background for everyone. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that if there were chapter breaks, um, that, yeah. you know, a couple of chapters were about Mars and his family, and, you know, there was a, ch and, like, the chapter breaks were essentially such that you could say, here's a chapter that was mostly about Thena and how, like, how her story started or resolved or whatever else, rather than the thirds that they're in, I think it would have been more satisfying. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I think part two, there should have been, like, uh, Philadelphia should have been its own part. And then we would have had a couple of stories in Philadelphia about how people are, are, are dealing with things. And I, I think that the stylistic decision to just have three parts and for that to be the breakdown and so there isn't a little bit more modularity to the stories to associate with each other and maybe take breaks in the reading and stuff like that. I, I mm -hmm. think that that's sort of where it starts to lack some cohesion that it in some ways already has and then could have been emphasized a little bit more. Hmm. I think one thing it would be interesting if it would done was, kind of like we were saying, Sarah, is that if it addressed the concept of memory and the loss of it in more characters than just our narrator. Because the yeah. closest we get to another person is Thena at the very end of the story in terms of her avoidance of memory as a conscious method of coping. Mm -hmm. If this has been something that had been developed in other characters and seen as a constant through line of a story earlier and how other people deal with it and how it's other taken from it, and almost making the idea of, being of having memory taken away from you being the magical aspect of this world, and that maybe being the magical focus, that could have made a more consistent tone and focus throughout the story that we'd have we could have kept returning for without making these uh, various vignettes, though interesting, so feel so disseparate from each other. Yeah. Well, it, and I, I think that, and the other side of it is, it could be just that memory is the one that's important to Hiram, and then there are other important ones to everybody else, and so we have this focus on memory because it's it's his thing, and that's why it sort of gets caught up in that. But it's not as important for everybody else. And but I I, I do very much agree with you guys. The magic is just, I think. And there are other ways to do essentially what would be magic of the book just like not telling you about the really long walking journey or even horse ride journey from somewhere in Virginia to, to Philadelphia and mm -hmm. back. Um, and, you know, just to have sort of the 
uh, shroud of uh, mysticism on his meeting with or meetings with Harriet Tubman and just sort of have that sort of be the magic that he figures that she basically tells him how, how to get in touch with his memories and that's unlocking his potential as an agent and then you don't need the shiny fog mm-hmm. yeah. it's interesting it's interesting too for our two magical characters I do find Harriet Tubman's character in this book fascinating I enjoy the very mystical way that she's betrayed the very removed from time removed from any ability to ac- accurately conceptualize I think the mm-hmm. author does that pretty well I think it's helped by the fact that this is a person that is actually historically nicknamed Moses. That gives you a good way to start that point off. I think just one of the problems we just keep on running into is that our main character is just not a very interesting expression of anything. That if he's our other main way of seeing how magic works, it's always going to appear a bit of a lackluster way of doing it just because he himself is, ultimately, despite the story being about him developing as a person, not that interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, go I was going to say, Moses isn't very interesting if he sort of raises his hand and makes a couple ripples on the pond. So <laughs> maybe eventually Hiram would get interesting. Um, so let's, do we have other things that we want to talk about in this episode? Well, let's go with in conclusions, because I think we often don't do that enough. How did everyone feel about this? And if you were to recommend it to another person, what would you say in recommending it? Can I ask one quick question as a follow-up to the conversation we were just having, um, which is also very much a summing up question. We have talked a lot about um, the uh, drawbacks of Hiram as a narrator. If you were going to choose one of the other characters that we have in this novel to read a story from their perspective instead of Hiram's, who would you choose? Wow, a lot of them. Um... Sophie could be very interesting. Um, mm. No, <laughs> I think it. I think it depends who writes it, because I. It, I think that there are. Uh, there would be perspectives that could be written that I think would just sort of be unpleasant because it. It sort of. It wouldn't be a quite a torture book, but it'd be really close. Mm. Um. And I just, like, I don't know how interesting that would end up being, even though I think it's an important story. All right. Well, who would you recommend then, BJ? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to go weird and, <laughs> and, and, and say Mars. Like, I did, like, <laughs> like the the family of bakers and like still having you know family and slavery that they're trying to get out but like essentially being they're sort of this happy little nucleus and providing for the underground and not quite being a part of it i think is one of the more unique stories that is encompassed in this book i um, I want Thena's novel. Thena? Sure. Yeah. Um, that would be so sad. <laughs> it would be very sad. 
I was thinking about some other characters like that I find interesting, like um, Horace Walker or Kareem, but I think they work better from having other people look upon them than ever getting to see through their eyes. Yeah, I was thinking about um, the the conversation we were having about Horace earlier and how much of how interesting a character he is and how much I want to know more about him, but I also feel uncomfortable about like recommending another narrative of a white man. It, it, w- it would not <laughs> fit for anything this book is doing. Yeah. It'd, be an, it'd be such an interesting sudden moment of, okay, and then let's turn to Albert Speer to describe the rise and fall of Nazi Germany. It's, it would be <laughs> su- such a bit of a tone break moment. Right, yeah. Um, okay, so let's go back to your question, Spencer. Um, okay. Actually, what about um, Cassia? Cassia is Thena's daughter. Yes, I was thinking. I was thinking about that. I do because she's such an interesting character, and she was kind of my other choice. And I think that she would have a great narrative. My, I chose Thena over Cassia, simply because I think that the experience of having read the second section of this book Mm -hmm. um, has made me, I think realize that I am more interested, particularly if if, if Ta-Nehisi Coates is doing the writing, I am mm-hmm. more interested in the stories of people who stayed and have people leave them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very much agree with that. And also in part because she stays in Virginia the whole time, which I yeah. think is a setting we found much more interesting. And I think if we were just like, invest, if we were investing sight unseen in do this narrative, let's see how it goes. We know that Thena has done more and has lived more and experienced more. There's more options there. There's more meat to be explored there. With Cassia, yeah. she is an interesting character, and she offers some very interesting perspectives to our main character. But we just don't know as much more about what she's done to know whether there's that much interesting to go into. Mm-hmm. And I suppose there always could be in the fleshing out of the story, but um, the more person left behind is always interesting to me. Yep, particularly given so much of her story is the process of being the sole survivor, the sole one left behind as everyone leaves her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, final concluding thoughts. Uh, I enjoyed reading this book, despite my seeming hostility and <laughs> stamping the, ta- the table. Um, felt like I had to with BJ Slane defending something. That's never happened before. Um, <laughs> you got so angry. It was just... <laughs> was such a change-up. That has never happened before. Um, I enjoyed this. I particularly, it just I ultimately enjoyed chunks of it better than I enjoyed the overall book. The parts I liked were fascinating and made for some lovely discussion with you guys and some wonderful ponderings in my own mind. But it, it feels like it's something that is almost more fitting for a philosophy class in terms of exploring these elements than necessarily a concrete novel. And so I'd kind of recommend that lens of it. Go into this as an interesting thought experiment as a fun point of discussion rather than an ultimately successful narrative. I want there to be thought put into where the chapters are and appropriate quotes for them. And I would I think I would have liked this book a lot more. Um, I think that just in how I ended up reading it and how it it doesn't it doesn't come in easily digestible pieces and i think 
some of that is sort of like the copy editing and uh, how how the book ended up being put together rather than the writing itself. Mm. Because there were definitely times that it's just a, I wanted a, a, like a, a bite-sized t- chunk to chew over and I felt like I read two to three times more than I would have otherwise. And it just, it felt slower because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have also complained, especially in this episode, about certain aspects of this book, but I really loved it. Um, I think the recommendation loved, is listen to it. <laughs> I, my recommendation is listen to it. Like, it really is. But I will say that I am, like, a thousand percent sure that if I were still in my graduate program and we were going to campus at this moment, um, that the classes that I was in, um, you know, in sort of um, multi-ethnic literature and uh, critical race theory and things like that, like, I guarantee you that those classes are reading this book. No surprise at all there. Um, so I would also recommend it for sort of graduate level English courses. <laughs> <laughs> would you use this as an interesting pairing with Toni Morrison? Or are, I, the, are, are they two in Congress with each other? No, I think it totally, I think it absolutely could be an interesting point of comparison with Toni Morrison. Um, I, I mean, I think that it would be particularly interesting, like, if I were putting, if I were going to build a course around what this book is doing, is doing, mm-hmm. um, as much as I complained about how it was using it, and I would prefer a rewrite in which this were not happening, I would a thousand percent put this in a course in, which would also then include Toni Morrison, um, and then I would have to... Um, go back through my reading list to see what else there would uh, that I would put in here but it would be a course that is essentially about the use of magic in um, the use of magic in African American literature and what it's doing and why it's there and how successful it is Uh, so for your Friday homework please write a short essay on (laughs) what you think the importance of magic was in the the water dancer Mm -hmm. and what what role it played in fleshy Well, Sarah, here's your topic. You mentioned that you wanted Thinna's narrative. Would you agree that Beloved is basically Thinna's narrative? It, I mean, it really is in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, in a slightly different historical moment, which I think is really important. Um, but it is, I think, doing a lot of the same thing. And I think Toni Morrison ultimately finds that kind of perspective in terms of the loss of a mother, the loss of an individual, mm-hmm. leaving mm-hmm. people behind, and how they cope with that. A more interesting focus. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, it's interesting because this the water dancer is so much about loss, but it's... It's an almost... I feel like it is not engaging as deeply with the idea of loss. Mm-hmm. We see loss in a lot of other people, but our mm-hmm. loss from the perspective of our main character, we don't necessarily get to experience as much because he doesn't know what that loss is until so late in the narrative, it almost loses relevance. Yeah. All right, it's fa- other thoughts? It's, it's fascinating when we end up these stories and we sound like we absolutely hated something that we're all still recommending. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which I think is it is it is important, Spencer, to do these little summing up things because we have yeah. to get back to the idea of like, oh wait, we actually really liked this, but it is easier and perhaps perhaps more productive to talk about the things that we disagree with. And I, I think that it talks about how interesting the book is that it's worth talking about because yes. I mean I think I think the best example of a a book that that somebody that is near and dear to all of us uh co- completely disliked and then dropped it after reading 30 kindle pages was guards <laughs> guards and, and and there was just like then it's not worth discussing it's not worth it's not even worth like really complaining about it was mm-hmm. just like i hated it and so i stopped like what is there to talk about here yeah right yeah and so i I think that the difference between a book that that we're only going to shout the praises of and we're going to talk about critically is of like the top five ten percent. It is a worthwhile compliment to somebody that you merit negative you you merit criticism. You 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 are yes. worthwhile enough for us to talk about your positives and your negatives and our frustrations with you because we had an interesting and unique experience of going through you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the perfect contrast for me, for, in in many ways, would be Binti, where, like, we struggled to find good things to say rather than picked it apart, and none yep. of us, like, I think we all found that there were a lot of problems with it. Whereas this, like, there were problems, but we're picking it apart because, because because we enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like our experience of Binti, BJ, was your two sigh moments in terms of describing this book just prolonged over the course of a couple episodes. <laughs> Very difficult to hold a conversation with the sigh machine. Yeah. <laughs> we, we never got the vehement BJ defense of the person on death row. I, I wish I could have summoned it for that, but it just... It wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I... There's so many things about this book that were just so good that I think recommend it so highly. Um, I, I think I'm going to recommend this to people because I, I want to be able to talk about it with them and talk about their feelings and thoughts. I think I just have to include such a, just a massive caveat about how to experience it. That yeah. I, I can't recommend this as a novel, as a traditional narrative, as a hero's journey or anything else along those lines. It isn't. Mm-hmm. I kind of just have to recommend it as just an interesting meditation analysis of characters' experiences in slavery. That you t- should experience as an audiobook. Yes. Uh, I'm, Sarah, thank you again for recommending that. I'm going to get that and listen to it now. I can't be sewing the same way you were, but I'll find some comparative activity. Um, I am happy to send you some needlepoint. <laughs> and I'm happy to stare at it while I actually listen to this thing. <laughs> I don't know that that's the ideal experience of any of this. <laughs> Sarah, I think I did this wrong. I stared at needles for four hours and someone told me a story. What should I do different? (laughs) You're beyond help, Spencer. (laughs) In so many ways. But if our listeners wish to find our various ways of providing them help in experiencing stories, BJ, where can they find us? Um, You can find all of our content on mangumtalks.com. All of the Mangum Read stuff is on our Facebook page as well, uh, which is... Mangum Reads, um, and that includes our podcast within podcast, Pottering Around, um, our chapter by chapter read of the Harry Potter novels, and every so often we have bonus content on our YouTube channel, 
which is Mangum Reads. Um, and if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, uh, you can post on our Facebook page or uh, click contact us at the upper right-hand corner of mangumtalks.com. And I think next time we can look forward to some... Uh, Stephen King? Stephen King short stories. That's um, what I've been told. <laughs> well, once, and once perhaps we... some uh, featured guests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> once we get those hammered down, we'll post them so everybody can know in advance. And uh, yeah, guys, looking forward to it. All right. Bye, y'all.